Looking into the mirror, you can't believe what just happened. So much blood. So much blood from such a thin body. You stare at your reflection. Flashbacks of the slice, the stab, the screams, the fight, the fumble, and finally, submission. The water runs in the sink, hitting the knife, pooling the blood down the drain. You didn't mean to kill him, but it was him or you. He stood in your doorway with a knife. He cut you first. What were you to do? You finish cleaning up. The body lies on the bed. You go into the kitchen. The table is set. Eggs and bacon sit beside the stove. Fear hits you. You had completely misread the situation. That night, you bury the body in the crawl space. Tomorrow, you will get concrete to lay over him. You're exhausted. You lie down, playing over and over what happened. Hearing him gasp, taking his last breath. You finally found it. The ultimate thrill. Death. This was John Wayne Gacy, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Born March 17, 1942, in Chicago, to John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Robinson. John was an auto repair machinist and a World War I vet. Marion was a homemaker. His grandparents from his father's side emigrated from Poland to the US, and the family was Catholic. Gacy was close to his mother and sisters, but his father, their relationship was difficult, strained and abusive. His father was an alcoholic and known to physically abuse the whole family. Gacy described his father's punishment was done by a belt. His mother would try to protect him, so his father would verbally insult him, calling him sissy, mama's boy, and he'd likely grow up queer. Despite all of this, Gacy loved his father dearly, but he always felt he was never good enough to his father. 1949, word reached Gacy's father that Gacy and another boy were found sexually assaulting a young girl. His father got a razor strap and whipped him for such a deed. At the same time, a family friend and contractor was molesting Gacy in his truck from time to time. Gacy never told his father of this abuse, as he feared his father would blame him and not the family friend. Gacy was a bulky kid and not very sporty. With a heart condition, he was advised to avoid all sports. As a child, he would experience blackouts, ended him in hospital at times, and in 1957, he ended up in hospital for a burst appendix. With time lost from school, from these visits in hospital, his grades began to fail. His father never believed his sickness. He thought Gacy was lying, trying to get sympathy and attention. His mother and sisters always believed he was truly ill. This medical condition was never diagnosed. His father's assaults on him were erratic, with no real reason to them. His father would just hit him, beat him, or belittle him for no reason. According to a friend of Gacy's, he never hit his father back during these assaults. 1960, Gacy is 18 and starts to be involved in politics and worked as an assistant precinct captain for the Democratic Party candidate. 
This wouldn't impress his father, having him called a patsy. In the same year, his father bought him a car, but many catches came with it. His father kept the title until Casey paid for the car, which took years. His father would take the keys in case he didn't do what he said. To get around this, Gacy made spare keys in 1962. But when his father found out, he removed the distributor cap, keeping it for days as punishment. Once the cap was back, Gacy left, driving to Las Vegas. He got a job for the ambulance service, transferring to a work in Palm Mortuary. He worked here for three months, watching and learning. He would sleep in the embalming room. One night, Gacy leapt into her coffin with her corpse, embraced it and caressed it before a sense of shock hit him. This shock made him call home the next day asking if his father would allow him home. He did and Gacy drove home that very same day. When he came back, he enrolled at Northwestern Business College. 1963, he graduated and took a management trainee job at Noom Bush Shoe Company. 1964, he was transferred to Springfield to work as a salesman and then manager. He would meet, date and become engaged to Marilyn Myers, a co-worker. During this, Gacy joined the local JCs, a leadership, training and civic organisation. Gacy worked tirelessly for them. In 1964, he was named the key man in it. In the same year, Gacy has his second homosexual encounter. Gacy would say a colleague in Springfield JCs piled him with alcohol and invited him to spend the evening. He agreed and while drunk, the colleague performed oral sex on him. In 1965, Gacy was now vice president of Springfield JCs. In September 1964, Gacy and Marilyn married. Marilyn's father bought three KFC restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. Gacy would manage these so he and Marilyn would move to Waterloo. The job was money-wise great, $15,000 a year or $135,000 a year today, plus shares of profits. Gacy opened a club of sorts in his basement where employees drank and played pool. Although employees were men and women, it was mainly young men to be invited to Gacy's club. He piled in with alcohol and then made sexual advances. If he was pushed back, Gacy would claim it as a joke or test of morals. February 1966 and March 1967, Gacy's wife gave birth to a son and daughter. Gacy would describe this time as perfect, finally getting his father's approval. July 1966, his parents visited. His father would apologize privately about all the emotional and physical abuse he did to him. So while in Waterloo, Gacy joined the local JC chapter. He would offer his spare time while doing 12 to 14 hours work as the manager of the KFCs. At meetings, he, bought, he brought fried chicken and insisted he be called Colonel. He, along with other JCs in Waterloo, were big into wife swapping, prostitutes, pornography and drugs. Gacy would be considered cocky, but was held in high regard for his fundraising work. In 1967, he was named Outstanding Vice President of Waterloo JCs and served on the boards of directors. August 1967, Gacy sexually assaulted Donald Voorhees. 
who was a son of fellow Jesse. Donald was 15 and lured by Jesse. Jesse lured Donald to his house with the promise of seeing heterosexual psych films, a type of pornographic film, and these were played often at Jesse events. Gacy piled the boy with alcohol. They watched the film and Gacy persuaded the boy into a mutual oral sex, convincing him you have to have sex with a man before a woman. The next few months, Gacy this, did this with other young males. He would convince many this was done as an experiment for scientific research, paying them up to $50 each. March 1968, the Voorhees boy told his father, who immediately called the police and Gacy was arrested and charged with performing oral sodomy on Donald Voorhees. Gacy was also charged with the attempted assault on a boy named Edward Lynch. Gacy denied it all, demanded a polygraph and accused it was politically motivated, as Verheer's father had opposed Gacy's nomination as president of JCs. Many fellow JCs thought Gacy was being set up and would rally around him in support. But May 10, 1968, Gacy was indicted on sodomy charges. August 30, 1968, Gacy convinced employee Russell Schoolfurder to physically assault the Voyeurs to intimidate them to testify in court. Gacy promised $300 and Russell agreed. So early September, Russell missed and bet up Donald. Donald escaped and went to the police, identifying Russell as the attacker. He was arrested the next day. At first, he denied having any involvement, but soon confessed and pointing blame at Gacy. Gacy was arrested and additional charges of hiring Russell to assault and intimidate the Voyeurs were added. September 12th, Gacy was ordered to complete a psych evaluation. Two doctors were examining him over 17 days. They concluded he had an antisocial personality disorder, clinical term for a sociopath or psychopath. They would add no treatment would benefit him and that this behaviour pattern would have him repeat offences. They declared him mentally fit to stand trial. November 7, 1968, Gacy pleaded guilty to one count sodomy against Donald for years, but not guilty in the other offence against the other youths. Although pleading guilty, Gacy would try to say Donald offered himself to him, and Gacy was just curious. This wasn't believed, and on December 3rd, he was convicted and sentenced to 10 years. On that day, Marilyn filed divorce. She wanted the home, the property, sole custody of children, and alimony. This was all approved. The divorce was finalized on September 18, 1969. Gacy would never see her or the children again. While imprisoned, Gacy would fast become a model prisoner. He would quickly become head cook. He joined the inmate JC chapter, which went from 50 to 650 in less than 18 months. He was able to get inmates daily pay increase and was involved in many projects improving inmate conditions. Summer 1969, Gacy would oversee a mini golf course in the rec recreational yard. June 1969, Gacy was denied parole. Christmas Day in 1969, Gacy's father died from cirrhosis of the liver. When Gacy was told, he collapsed, crying uncontrollably. He asked to attend the funeral, but this was denied. 
June 18, 1970, Gacy was granted parole. He served just 18 months of his 10-year sentence. Parole came with conditions. He was to live with his mother in Chicago and would have a curfew of 10 p.m. A fellow GC collected him from the prison and Gacy insisted he'd never return to jail. June 19th, he was back in Chicago and was working as a short cook. February 12th, 1971, Gacy was charged with sexual assault on a teen boy. The boy claimed Gacy lured him from the Chicago Greyhound bus terminal to his home. Here, he attempted to force the boy into sex. These charges were dismissed when the boy failed to show for court. June 22nd, Gacy was arrested for aggravated sexual battery and reckless conduct. A youth claimed Gacy flashed a sheriff's badge, lured him to a car and forced him to perform oral sex. This was dropped when it came out that the complainant blackmailed Gacy. The IOR Board of Parole never knew about these and eight months later, in October 1971, Gacy's parole was done. November 1971, Gacy's criminal records were sealed. With his mother's help, Gacy bought a ranch house. He resided at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue. He lived here until finally be arrested in December 1978. Gacy would say he committed all his murders here. But before that, Gacy was active in his local community and helped his neighbours. From 1974 to 1978, Gacy held annual summer parties, each one themed. These would be attended by hundreds of people, sometimes 400, including politicians. August 1971, Gacy became engaged to Carol Hopp, who was an ex from high school. They married July 1st, 1972. Carol had two girls from a previous marriage. They moved in once the engagement was announced. At the time, his mother was living with him, but she moved out just before the wedding. 1975, Gacy came out to his wife as bisexual. Mother's Day that year, Gacy would tell her today was the last time they would ever have sex. He started to not come home until all hours, saying he was working late. Carol would see teen boys come and go from Gacy's garage, and she found gay pornography and men's wallets. She would question Gacy about this. He firmly told her it's not her business. October 1975, an argument erupted between them. Carol asked for a divorce during it, and Gacy agreed, but wanting to still live together, which they did until February 1976. Within months, the divorce was finalised. Gacy would be a part-time construction business in 1971. PDM, painting, decorating and maintenance construction. The probation officer would allow this and Gacy could work the evenings on construction while cooking during the day. He would do minor repair, sign writing, pouring concrete and redecorating. As the company grew, he, want, he went into interior design, remodeling, installation and landscaping. Come 1973, Gacy could leave the cook job business and pay more of his attention to his construction business. 
1975, PGM was super busy, with Gacy working 16 hours a day. 1977, Gacy would be supervisor for PE Systems, a firm that remodeled drugstores. Between PGM and PE, Gacy worked four projects at a time and traveled a lot. PGM in 1978 took $200,000 in revenue. Gacy would be a member of the local Moose Club. From this, he heard of a Jolly Joker Clown Club. The members would perform at fundraisers, parades and children's hospitals. Gacy would be Pogo and Patches the Clown. Gacy created his own costumes and did his own makeup. Pogo, he said, was the happy clown and Patches the more serious. He wouldn't earn a penny from his performance, but being a clown allowed him to go back to his childhood. He performed as both clowns as part at parties, political events, charities and children's hospitals. He would often remain dressed up after these events. Because he would perform during his murder years, he would later be called the Killer Clown. PDM employees were young men or young high school students. Gacy would proposition his workers for sex and sex favours in return for his vehicles, money or promotions. Gacy would even threaten some with his guns, stating how easy it was for him to kill them and get rid of their body. In 1973, Gacy and a teen went to Florida to look at a property he bought. While overnight, Gacy raped the teen. When they got home, the teen bet up Gacy in his own yard. When Gacy's wife questioned the injuries, he explained that as a disgruntled employee, he refused to pay due to poor work completed. May 1975, Gacy hired Anthony Antonucci, who was 15. Two months on, Anthony injured his foot, so Gacy went to visit him. They drank, watched the stag film, and then Gacy wrestled Anthony to the floor and handcuffed him. One cuff was loose, so Anthony freed a hand while Gacy was out of the room. When Gacy came back, Anthony got him to the floor, got the keys, unlocked the cuffs, and cuffed Gacy. Furious, Gacy threatened him. When that didn't work, Gacy compromised. If free, he'd leave. Anthony let him free and Gacy left. July 26, 1976, Gacy picked up David Cram, 18, who was hitchhiking. Gacy offered him a job at PDM, which he took. August 21st, David moved into Gacy's. The next day, celebrating his 19th birthday, they drank and Gacy dressed up as Pogo. Gacy cuffed David at the front. Gacy swung David around. He intended to rape him, but David kicked Gacy in the face, freed himself and ran. A month on, Gacy came into David's room, again with the intention to assault him. There was a scuffle. David straddled Gacy, who didn't like it, so he left. David moved out early on October 5th, leaving PDM too. David would still work on and off for Gacy for the next two years. Just after David left, Gacy employed another man named Michael Rossi, who was 18, and he also moved in. Michael would also ask for work with PDM. He lived with Gacy until 1977. I would also help Gacy as clowns during grand openings. Gacy was Pogo and Michael was Patches. 
Gacy would be involved in the local Democratic Party. He would offer free of charge cleaning of party headquarters. 1975, he was appointed to the director of Chicago annual Polish Constitution Day Parade. This event, he was supervised until 1978. Through this work, he was also photo photographed with Rosalind Carter, the First Lady, in May 6, 1978. This would later be an embarrassment for the US Secret Service. The photo would show Gacy with an S pin on him, which was given to those with special clearance. Gacy murdered at least 33 young men and teens, burying 26 of them in the crawl space in his house. Victims ranged from people he knew to complete strangers. He lured or conned with a promise of a job, drink, drugs and money. He also conned by using a fake policeman identity. He usually lured one at a time, but he did do what he called doubles, two victims on the same evening. At the house, alcohol flowed or drugs, or they talked honestly to gain trust. When Gacy had them teetering on the trust, he did a magic trick to calm any nerves or break tension. This involved handcuffs. Gacy would cuff his wrist behind his back, or appear to. In between his fingers would be the key, and he secretly released himself. He would then offer to show the victim. Once cuffed, unable to get free, Gacy would say his influence words. The trick is, you have to have the key. Gacy called this his handcuff trick. Now restrained, Gacy began to rape and torture his victims. He would sit on them, straddle them. He would also force them to perform sexual acts on him. He then burnt them with cigars, made them act like horses while he rode on them. He also violated them with objects. To immobilize their legs, he cuffed them to a two by four, an act inspired by Dean Arnold Coral, the Houston mass murderers. Gacy verbally abused the victims and partially drowned them. He would usually kill them with a rope around the neck, tightening it with a hammer handle. It, he would call this his rope trick, announcing to the victim this was his last trick. Some would convulse for an hour or two before dying, while others suffocated from rags stuffed down their throats. Most were killed between 3 and 6 a.m. Once dead, Gacy kept them under his bed for about 24 hours. Then he buried them in the crawl space. He poured quick lime to decompose the bodies quicker. Some victims' bodies were embalmed in his garage before he buried them. So Gacy's first known murder happened January 3rd, 1972. He lured 16-year-old Timothy McCoy from Chicago Greyhound bus terminal. He took him sightseeing, then back to his house, promising to take him to the bus station the next day. Timothy would be dubbed the Greyhound bus boy until he was identified. Gacy woke the next morning to Timothy at the bedroom door with a knife in hand. Gacy leapt from his bed while Timothy put his hands up, as in a surrender pose. But the knife pointed upwards and Gacy in free flight got his arm cut. In a rage or maybe defence, Gacy twisted the knife from Timothy, banged his head against the wall, kicked him into the wardrobe and then walked towards him. Timothy kicked Gacy in the stomach. Gacy doubled over but sprung back up to grab Timothy. Wrestling him to the floor, 
and started, he stabbed him with the knife he had twisted off him before. Timothy lay dying while Gacy cleaned up in the bathroom. Gacy then went into the kitchen to see the table set for two and breakfast items waiting to be cooked. Timothy came to wake Gacy for breakfast, not realising he was still holding the knife. Gacy buried Timothy in the cross space, later covering with concrete. Gacy said the second murder he did was January 1974. The victim is unknown and Gacy said he strangled him and put him in the closet before burial. Later Gacy complained that the body leaked fluids from the nose and mouth, staining his carpets. So to avoid this, Gacy would stuff cloths down the mouth, often their own socks or underwear. July 31st, 1975, John Butkovics, 18, an employee of PDM, vanished. His car was found with his jacket, wallet and keys inside. The keys were still in the ignition. The day before he vanished, John had an argument with Gacy over late pay. John's father would call Gacy. Gacy would agree to help in the search and claimed John ran away. Police would question Gacy. He claimed John and two friends came to the house demanding money. They reached an agreement and the three left. John's parents always thought Gacy knew more and had done something to John. They spent the next three years calling the police up to a hundred times, pleading them to look more into Gacy. When Gacy was eventually caught, he admitted that John came to the house to settle the wage issue. At the house they drank, Gacy did the handcuff trick and he strangled John. Gacy was going to bury John in a space, but his wife and stepdaughters came home early, so he buried John under the concrete floor of the tool room extension. 1975 wouldn't just be the year his business expanded, but also the year he increased his cruising around for sex with young men. Gacy called these items cruising. Most of these murders happened after his divorce, 1976 to 1978. He would call this period the cruising years. From the divorce, many noted Gacy became a bit odd. This included seeing Gacy with a lot of young men, here in his car in the early hours of the morning, and lights in the home being on at odd hours at night. One neighbour commented being woken to muffled screams, shouts and cries many times during the night. A month after the divorce was completed, Gacy abducted and killed Darrell Sampson, 18, last seen alive on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried him under the dining room. Five weeks later, May 14th, Randall Reffitt, 15, vanished from his home. Hours later, Samuel Stapleton, 14, vanished as he walked home. Both boys knew each other. Both were buried in the crawl space and both were believed to have been killed in the same evening. June 3rd, Gacy killed Michael Bonning, 17. Gacy strangled Michael and buried him under the spare room. 10 days on, Gacy killed William Carroll, 16. Buried him once again in the crawl space. William is believed to be one of four killed by Gacy from June till August, 1976. August 5th, James Hokinson, 16, phoned his family. This was the last time that they spoke. It's thought that the phone call came from Gacy's house. James died of suffocation. His body was buried in the crawl space below Rick Johnson, who was last seen alive on August 6th.
Two more unidentified males were murdered between August and October 1976. Gacy is believed to have committed these. On October 24th, friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino were last seen outside a restaurant. Both were abducted and killed by Gacy. October 26th, William Bundy, 19, a construction worker, vanished. He had told his family and friends he was attending a, fa- a party. William died of suffocation, buried under Gacy's master bedroom. William is thought to have worked with Gacy. November to December 1976, Gacy murdered Francis Alexander. He was buried in the crawlspace beneath the office. PDM employee Gregory Godzik vanished. His girlfriend was the last to see him after the date. Gregory worked for PDM for just three weeks and was working on a trench for drains. His car was found abandoned. His sister would speak to Gacy. Gacy claimed Gregory ran away, but left him a message on his answer machine. When the family asked to hear this, Gacy said it had been erased. January 20th, 1977. Gacy told John Six, come to his house to allegedly buy John's car. Gacy strangled John. Michael Rossi would be staying at Gacy's at this time. Gacy would sell, sell Michael John's car for $300. March 15th, John Prestige vanished. He would be buried in the crawl space above Francis Alexander. Just before going missing, John had mentioned he got a job with a local contractor. Another male was murdered late spring, early summer 1977 by Gacy and buried in the crawlspace. July 5th, Gacy murdered Matthew Bowman. August 1977, Michael Rossi was arrested for stealing gasoline while in six car. The gas station attendant was able to get the plate and police traced it to Gacy's house. Gacy would tell police John sold the car to him for money to leave town. A VIN check was done and confirmed it was six. The police didn't look into it any further, but did inform Six's mum that he had sold his car. End of 1977, Gacy is known to have killed six young men. The first was Robert Gilroy. He was a police sergeant's son and was last seen September 15th. Gacy murdered him and buried him in the crossface. Now this one is different because Gacy wasn't in the state until September 16th. Gacy has always claimed he had one or more helpers in his murders. This uh, killing of Robert Gilbert does support this claim. September 26, former US Marine John Murray vanished walking to his home. Gacy strangled him and buried him under the master bedroom. October 17th, Russell Nelson vanished. Gacy murdered him and buried him under the guest bedroom. A month on, Robert Winch, 16, was killed by Gacy's hands and buried in the crawlspace. November 18th, Tommy Bolin, a young father, vanished. December 9th, US Marine David Talsma went missing. He last spoke to his mother about attending a rock concert. Gacy strangled him and buried him next to John Murray in the crawlspace. December 30th, at a Chicago bus station, Gacy adopted Robert Donnelly at gunpoint. He took Robert to his home, raped and tortured him for hours. Robert was in so much pain, he begged Gacy to kill him. Instead, Gacy drove him to his workplace and released him. 
He would warn him not to bother the police, as they would never believe him. Robert would go on and report Gacy, who was questioned on January 6, 1978. Gacy would admit to a ex-slave relationship with Robert, all agreed and consensual. Gacy added he didn't pay him, so maybe that's why he was disgruntled. Police believed Gacy and filed no charges. A month later, William Kindred vanished on February 16th. Gacy killed him and buried him in the crawl space. William would be the last one buried in the crawl space. March 21st, Jeffrey Rignall was lured by Gacy to his car. Once in the car, Gacy chloroformed Jesse, Jeffrey, and took him to his house. He restrained Jeffrey's arms and head to a device attached to the ceiling and locked his feet in another device. He raped and tortured Jeffrey using chloroform over and over, sending him unconscious. Gacy then drove Jeffrey, dumping him in Lincoln Park, unconscious but alive. Somehow Jeffrey made it to his girlfriend's house. Police were contacted but didn't look at Gacy. Jeffrey was in and out of consciousness but was able to remember the Oldsmobile, Kennedy Expressway and side streets. Jeffrey and friends took it upon themselves to stake out these areas until finally in April they saw the Oldsmobile following it back to 8213 West Somerdale. Now with more information to give to the police, an arrest warrant was issued. July 15th, Gacy was arrested. With the crawl space full by 1978, Gacy needed another storm place. He considered the attic but remembered the leakage issue he had in the closet. So he chose to dump his victims off the I-55 bridge into the Des Plains River. Gacy would later state he dumped at least five into the river in 1978. One body, he said, landed on a passing barge. Only four of the five were ever found. The first known victim in this river was Timothy O'Rourke. He was murdered in mid-June while getting smokes. Before his murder, Timothy told his roommate about being offered a job by a contractor. November 4th, Gacy killed Frank Landingen. His body was found naked on November 12th in the Des Plains River. November 24th, James Mazara went missing after a family Thanksgiving dinner. Before going missing, James told his sister about working construction. December 11th, 1978, Gacy, Gacy was in Neeson's Pharmacy that afternoon for a job for remodeling. Gacy was speaking to the owner, Phil Toff. While talking, he noticed a part-time store boy, Robert Peist, who was 15 at the time. Gacy mentioned his firm hiring teams for $5 an hour, double what Robert was getting at the pharmacy. Gacy left and Robert's mother arrived to collect him for a family party. Robert asked his mother to wait, saying he was going to talk to a man about a contractor job. Robert left at 9pm, promising he won't be long. Robert died in Gacy's home just after 10 p.m. Gacy later said, while at the house, he wanted to know what Robert would do for what money. Gacy would suggest hustling, which Robert dismissed. Gacy performed the handcuff, the handcuff trick. When Robert was locked, Gacy threatened rape. Robert began to cry. Gacy then placed a rope around Robert's neck, saying the boy was crying scared. Gacy actually took a phone call while Robert lay dying, suffocating on the floor. 
Robert's family filed a missing persons report when he failed to make the party. Phil Toff, the pharmacy owner, named Gacy as the contractor Robert went to see about the job. Lieutenant Joseph Kosensack would be drawn to the investigation as his son attended the same school as Robert Peist. Kosensack spoke to Robert's mother on December 12th. With this talk, Kosensack felt that Robert wasn't a runaway. He checked Gacy's criminal history and found the outstanding battery charge along with the prison sentence for sodomy. Kosenzak and two other officers visited Gacy the next day. Gacy spun a story about two boys in the pharmacy. He spoke to one he believed was Robert and asked about remodeling materials. He insisted he never offered a job and did return to the pharmacy at 8pm to get his appointment booked. When asked to attend the station to make a statement, Gacy declined due to an uncle dying, but would later. He didn't arrive. The police again asked how soon he could come. Gacy became irritated, called them rude, having no respect for the dead. At 3.28 a.m. in came Gacy to the police station, covered in muck and filthy. He claimed he was in a car accident. He would leave and return later that day. Gacy denied any involvement with Robert's disappearance, insisting over and over he never offered a job. He was asked why he returned to the pharmacy and Gacy said he got a call from Toff, the owner regarding his appointment book that he left. Detectives would obviously speak to Toff, who denied ever calling Gacy. Gacy completed a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. So after first they thought Gacy was holding Robert, against his will in his house. With this idea, the police got a warrant to search the home on December 13th. The search found some unusual things, police badges, six millimeter brevettas, syringes, handcuffs, many books on homosexuality, pornography, films, dildos, two by fours and with two holes drilled on each side, volume, driver license, a blue parker on a toolbox, underwear too small for Gacy in the closet. They also found a, a main West High School ring engraved with J-A-S and a Nissan pharmacy receipt in the bin along with a sump nylon rope. Police took Gacy's old Mosbeal and any PDM work vehicles. Two teams of two police officers were then set up to surveillance Gacy. They did two shifts 12 hours each. This was done while investigations continued looking into the background and of Robert's disappearance. In the surveillance team was Mike Albrecht, David Hackmeister, Ronald Robinson and Robert Skultz. Michael Rossi contacted the police the next day giving information about Gregory Godsick and Charles Haltula. Haltula was a PDM employee that was found drowned in the river earlier that year. December 15th, investigators would find out more about the battery charges. They learned Jeffrey Rignell reported Gacy lured him to his car, chloroformed him, raped and tortured him, then dumped him with severe chest and facial burns and rectal injuries in Lincoln Park. Gacy's former wife was interviewed late on the 15th. This is when they found out about John Butfick's disappearance. The ring that was found was John Allen Skykes, J.A.S. His mother also told police about other items missing from John's apartment. December 16th, 
Gacy turned on the charm to his police shadows, inviting them to dinner or drinks out in town or at his home. He would deny anything to do with Robert's disappearance. He accused officers of harassing him because of his political links or his recreational drug use. David Cram would be interviewed. He described Gacy as hardworking and open-minded when it came to men having sex. David, December 17th, Michael Rossi was interviewed. He gave information about Gacy selling him Sykes' car because Sykes needed money to move. On this date, the Oldsmobile was examined. Small clusters of what was suspected to be human hair was found in the trunk. In the evening, three trained German Shepherd search dogs were swept over it to see if Robert had been in it. One dog lay in the pasture's seat, which is said to be the death reaction, indicating Robert's body was in the Oldsmobile. That evening, Gacy invited detectives Albrecht and Hackmaster to a restaurant and then another in the early hours of December 18th. They chatted, they talked about life, business, marriage and clown gigs. At one point Gacy said, you know, clowns can get away with murder. By this point Gacy was beginning to break. The surveillance was getting to him. He was unshaved, tired, anxious and drinking a lot. The afternoon of the 18th he went to his lawyers to start a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plains Police, insisting the, va- the surveillance to end. That day, they connected the Nissan receipt to Kimberly Byers. Kimberly was the one to wear the parka on the 11th, as it was a cold day. She put the receipt in her pocket and gave it to Robert as he left the store to talk about the job. This put a big hole in Gacy's story that he had no contact with Robert that evening. Michael Rossi would also give his second interview. He was more forthcoming with information, saying in the summer of 1977, he had to spread 10 bags of lime into the crawl space at Gacy's house. This he did by Gacy's request. December 19th, evidence was gathered for a second search warrant. Same day came Gacy's civil suit. That afternoon, Gacy invited Officer Robinson and Skultz into his house. Robinson chatted to Gacy while Skultz went in to search for items connected to John Six from his mother's list. Skultz was unsuccessful, so he flushed the toilet, suggesting that's where he went. He then smelt what he described as rotting corpse stench coming from the heating system. This wasn't noticed before because the house had been cold and the heating wasn't on. December 20th, David Cram and Michael Rossi were interviewed again. Michael Rossi agreed to be interviewed regarding John Sykes and Robert Pest's disappearance. Michael thought Gacy might have placed Robert in the crawl space and said he thought Gacy stole Sykes' car. Michael completed a polygraph. Soon after, he got fed up being questioned, so he refused to continue. His response to the polygraph was erratic and not consistent, so the machine couldn't give a clear reading. Michael did, however, give information about a trench he dug in the crawl space, remarking Gacy was very direct to dig only where told. David's interview would tell of the 1976 rape attempt on him by Gacy. He told about returning to the house with Gacy on the 13th after the search on the property. 
Gacy, he claimed, went pale when, so, when he saw a mud stain on the carpet, thinking it came from the crawl space. According to David, Gacy grabbed a flashlight and searched the crawl space for evidence of digging. David would be asked in the interview if he had ever been in the crawl space. David said he had to spread lime and dig a trench that Gacy said was for pipes. The trench was two feet wide and six feet long, more grave than pipe size. Evening of December 20th, Gacy arrived at his lawyers to discuss the civil suit. When he got there, he wasn't in a good place, needed a drink immediately. His lawyer, Sam Arante, went out and grabbed a bottle of whiskey from his car. When he returned, Gacy was pacing. He picked up a copy of the Daily Herald that was on Amarati's desk. Robert Peist was the front page news. Gacy would say, this boy is dead. He's dead. He's in a river. This opened the floodgates and Gacy erupted with confessions, running well into the night. He said he was the judge, the jury and the executioner of so many. Now he wanted the same for himself. He said most were buried in the crawl space and five he dumped in the Des Plaines River. He would describe some victims as prostitutes, hustlers and liars. He would claim sometimes he woke to dead strangled kids on the floor and cuffed. He buried them in the crawl space because to him they were his property. While he confessed he drank and come midway into his confession he nodded off. Amarante would scramble to get Gacy a psychiatric appointment by the morning. When Gacy woke, he was told about his confession, but it didn't quite register and he insisted he had to go. He had things to do and against his lawyer's advice, he left. Although he appeared not to take in what happened, he knew time was up and he intended to visit friends and family before it all ended. He went to a gas station to fill up his car. Here, he handed a bag of cannabis to the attendant. The attendant handed this to the surveillance officer, saying Gacy told him, the end is coming for me. These guys are going to kill me. Gacy went to see contractor Ronald Road. Hugging him, crying and confessing, he did bad and killed 30 people. Gacy then went to see David Cram and Michael Rossi. While he drove there, the surveillance team noted he was holding rosary beads, appearing to pray. From David and Michael, Gacy had David drive him to his lawyer's Leroy Stevens. David told the surveillance officer that Gacy confessed to 30 murders the night before to his lawyers. Next was to the cemetery to his father's grave. As Gacy went place to place, the officers did up a draft for a second search warrant. Fearing Gacy's descent of behaviour, which could have him take his own life, the police decided to arrest on the charge of possession and distribution of cannabis from the attendant. This was done to hold him in custody to get the second warrant. December 21st, that evening, the second search warrant was granted. Police informed Gacy that they were going to search the crawl space for Robert. Gacy confessed to the self-defence killing of a young man and he was buried under the garage, but there wasn't Robert. When police arrived at Gacy's, the crawl space was flooded. The sump pump had been unplugged. To clear the flood, they had to replace the plug and wait for it to drain. 
Once cleared, evidence technician Daniel Genty entered the crawl space and began digging. Within minutes, he found flesh and an arm bone. Genty would inform the investigators to charge him, stating, I think this place is full of kids. A police photographer also was digging in the space and found a patella. The two kept digging and found two lower legs. Victims were too decomposed to be Robert Pest. Skulls were found, rib cages, feet. Soon four victims were found, confirming the scale of the murders. Early morning, December 22nd, in front of his lawyers, Gacy gave his confession of murdering 30 men, stating all entered his home willingly. Some he named, but most he couldn't remember. He claimed all were teens, runaways or prostitutes, and that most were buried in the crawl space. Gacy said he only dug for five victims and got his employees, including Gregory Godsick, to dig trenches to have graves ready. Gacy was shown Robert Haston's driver license that was found at his home. Gacy denied knowing him, saying a victim had the license. Gacy would be questioned specifically about Robert Peist. Gacy confessed he lured him to his home and strangled him on December 11th. He then admitted he dumped him in the Des Plaines River. He wouldn't dump Robert until December 13th, before he slept alongside Robert's corpse. December 23rd, Gacy, his lawyers and older sisters went to the I-55 bridge to show the exact spot where he dumped Robert. He would also admit to another four he dumped here. At his garage, he was to mark where he buried the individual he killed in what he claimed was self-defence. Gacy would name the victim John Butkovics. Gacy would map out where his victims were buried in the house to help. Over the next week, 26 bodies were unearthed in the, gr- in the crawl space and three more elsewhere in the property. Robert Stein, Cook County Medical Examiner, oversaw the exhumations. The crawl space was sectioned to each body and given an identity number. Body 1 was beneath the office and no cause of death could be determined. Body 2 was John Budakovic. Body 3 was above body 4. They were beside body 5, below body 1. Christmas would halt exhumation. Four more were found on December 26. Body 6 and 7 were in the same trench, with body 7 in the fetal position. A clot was found in the mouth, leading to cause of death to be suffocation. Body 8 was found with a tourniquet tied around its neck. Body 9 was under concrete, with several stab wounds indicating this might be the first victim. December 27th, 8 more were found. Body 10 was face up under the entrance of the home. Body 11 and body 12 were beside each other beneath the hall, with ligature marks on their necks. Body 13 was under the spare room. Body 14 and 15 had their heads and bodies in separate plastic bags. Body 16 was near body 13 with a cloth in the throat. Body 17 had ligature marks on the neck. December 28, four more found. Body 19 was under the master bedroom. 90 degrees under that was body 18, which was under the spare room. Body 20 was 90 degrees, the opposite side of body 19. December 29th, six more bodies were unearthed. Body 22, 23, 24 and 26 
were in a common grave under the kitchen and laundry room. Body 25 was under the bathroom. Body 21 was above these and was recovered the day before. The Chicago blizzard of 1979 stopped operations until the march. Gacy insisted all were found, but March 9th, body 28 was found wrapped in plastic under the patio. Body 29 was found March 16th under the dining room floor. Bodies found were advanced stage of decomp- decomposition. Dental records and x-rays helped identify the remains. Confirmation of identities would also come with items found at the victims at Gacy's house. Twelve victims died, not of strangulation, but of suffocation. The house was demolished in April 1979. A victim was found six miles downstream from I-55 Bridge on June 30th. Using fingerprints records and unusual tattoo, the body was Timothy O'Rourke. He was victim 21. Frank Landingen was victim 32. He died of suffocation from his own underwear in his throat, causing his airway to be blocked. December 28, James Mazza was found one mile from I-55. He was strangled. Finally, April 19, 1979, a decomposed body was found entangled in exposed roots. Using dental records, the body was Robert Peist. The autopsy found wads of paper-like material in his throat while alive, causing him to suffocate. February 8, 1980, Gacy was brought to trial, charged with 33 murders. Jury was selected from Rockfield because of the media coverage in Cook County. The events had Gacy spend 300 hours with doctors the year leading up to his trial. He attempted to convince the doctors he had multiple personalities, with four personalities in total the hard-working civic-minded contractor, the clown, the active politician, and the policeman named Bad Jack. Bad Jack hated gays. His lawyers wanted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, saying Gacy was Jekyll and Hyde character. They produced many psychiatric experts that examined Gacy. Three of these experts testified that Gacy was a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personalities. Prosecutors said he was sane and in full control of his actions. They had experts who testified the premeditation of his actions and efforts he took to avoid being caught all proved his clear mind thoughts. David Cram and Michael Rossi testified digging trenches and spreading lime in the crawl space. February 18th, Robert Stein testified about how the bodies were found and what the autopsy showed. Gacy's defense suggested all were caused by an accidental erotic asphyxiation, to which Stein said it was highly improbable. February 21st, Jeffrey Rignall testified. He wept as he described the torture Gacy did to him on March 1978. During cross examination and delving more into the torture, Rignall started to vomit and was excused from further testimony. February 29th, Donald Verheers testified about his assault in 1967 and the attempts to have him not testify by being maced and beaten. A week later, Robert Donnelly recounted his horrific ordeal he had with Gacy in December 1977. Donnelly would struggle during his testimony, almost breaking down many times. 
As he testified, Gacy would smile, laugh and jeer at Donnelly. The defence team would try to discredit him, but Donnelly remained strong. In the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a letter to the judge requesting a mistrial. Reasons he gave was not approving his lawyer's insanity plea. His lawyers wouldn't allow him to take the stand, and his team didn't call enough medical witnesses. He also complained about the police lying regarding his verbal statements. The judge didn't grant him his trial. Instead, March 11th, final arguments would, be be would begin. Prosecutors would finish outlining Gacy's history of abusing youths, his efforts to avoid being caught, and that those who survived are now the living dead. The defence would have closed arguing against the testimony by the doctors, repeatedly citing what the four doctors for the defence said. They would try to say Gacy was a man driven by compulsion he couldn't control. Morning of the March 12th, the prosecution continued closing, claiming the insanity plea was a sham. They went on to de demonstrate Gacy's ability to think logically and control his actions. The prosecutors would ask the jury to show justice and not sympathy. After this, the jury retired. Less than two hours later, they found him guilty of 33 charges of murder. He was also found guilty of sexual assault and taken indecent liberties with a child, referring to Robert Peist. Gacy would be sentenced to death for each murder. His execution date was set for June 2, 1980. He was transferred to Menard Correctional Centre, which he remained in death row for 14 years. February 15, 1983, inmate Henry Brisbane stabbed Gacy, sending him to the prison hospital for a bit. Once in prison, Gacy read a lot of law books and filed motions and appeals, but didn't succeed in any of them. His appeals related to the validity of the first search warrant and his lawyer's insanity plea defence. Mid-1984, Supreme Court of Illinois upheld Gacy's conviction, ordering the execution dates to now be November 14th. Gacy would file against this, but it was denied March 4th, 1985. A year after, Gacy petitioned a new trial. This was dismissed September 11th, 1986. A new execu execution date was set for January 11th, 1989. His final appeal was in October 1993. It was once again denied and a new execution date was set and ordered for May 10th, 1994. May 9th, 1994, that morning Gacy was moved to Stateville Correctional Centre, Crest Hill, to be executed. In the afternoon, he had a private picnic with his family. His last meal consisted of a bucket of KFC, fried shrimp, fries, strawberries and a Diet Coke. When the evening came, he sat and prayed with a Catholic priest and then was taken to the execution chamber. Execution was to be done by lethal injection. Complications started when the chemicals used to complete the execution began solidifying, clogging the IV tube in Gacy's arm. The blinds to the witnesses were closed to deal with the issue. Just 10 minutes later, they opened again to continue the execution. The entire thing took 18 minutes. The issue would be blamed on the prison officials not following the correct execution procedures. Even with this issue, it's been said Gacy got a much easier death than any of his victims.
Before his execution, Gacy's final words was, Kiss my ass, expressing no remorse for any of his crimes. A crowd of 1,000 people waited outside, most in favour of the execution, but a small group of anti-death protesters were there too. At 12.58am May 10th 1994, Gacy was confirmed dead. His brain was removed and is in the possession of Helen Morrison, who was there at his trial as a witness for his defence. She also interviewed Gacy and other serial killers in an attempt to isolate common personality traits of violent sociopaths. Gacy's body was cremated. Only 28 victims were identified. In October 2011, Cook County announced they obtained full DNA profiles from the unidentified to renew efforts to identify them. Results so far confirmed three more victims, as well as ruling out many missing, as believed, victims of Gacy's. One of the things Gacy always told investigators was he didn't act alone in many murders. He never named them, only calling them his associates. Three PDM employees were considered suspects. David Cram, Michael Rossi and Philip Park were thought to be the associates. David and Philip were close to a man named John Norman. John operated a sex trafficking ring in the 70s in Chicago. At least two victims were thought to be murdered by Gacy, Kenneth Park and Michael Marino. These two were known to have been last seen alive near John Norman's home. This theory leads to the idea that Gacy was connected to the trafficking ring. Gacy's home was flattened to the ground and a new house was built eventually on the land. One worker involved in the demolition noted, If the devil's alive, he lived here. Thank you all for listening. Next time I'll be looking at Jenny Wise Power, an Irish activist, feminist, politician and businesswoman. She was founder member of Sinn Féin and an Inini Naharin. She would rise to the ranks, becoming one of the most important women of the revolution. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.